So this week is I Believe in God the Father Almighty. Last weekend, uh, a friend posted online an hour-long interview of my former pastor, uh, Tim Keller. In the interview, he talked about a great many things related to planting a Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, as well as his experiences there in ministry, the future of the church in America, and commentary on our current cultural environment. It's a great interview. Um, Kerry Newhoff, I think, is the name, a guy who does a leadership podcast, Kerry Newhoff, he's Canadian. It's a great interview, and I've watched it three times already. And one of those times was with Buzzy and the session, because I thought the content discussed by uh, Kerry and Tim Keller was timely and powerful. One of the things Keller talks about is how the church has generally operated in engaging non-believers for the past 1,000 years. He essentially said that the church operated with two ideas. People would attend church, that's one of them, and that they would have certain ideas or views of the world that they would agree with the church on. Those were the two things. They would attend, generally, whether it was frequently or infrequently, they would generally come to church. And second, they would have ideas already going into church that they already kind of agreed with the church on. These ideas that they came in, Keller called dots. And what the church would do is help make connections of those dots. So those dots were ideas like there is a God, there is a purpose in life, and that purpose in life is to be a good person. And the dot also might be, I'm, I'm incapable of being that kind of good person. So these were just general ideas that they would tended to agree with the church on. And the church, at the time, having the integrity was a source for the answer for these dots so that they could connect them. The church helped by connecting these dots whenever the unbeliever attended church, and that's how people generally came to Christ. This is... Not, a, you know, a 100% it was this way all the time, but this is generally how people came to Christ. So, Keller said that in the... Uh, but Keller said something in the interview that was interesting. What if these two different... Uh, these two things were different? One, they didn't attend church. Why should they? And two, there are no dots. So the two things he said generally the church operated on... What if they weren't true? That people aren't coming to church, they have no reason to, they have no desire to, and two, they don't have those dots in which they make connections with the lines. So there are no generally accepted ideas by the majority of the culture, and therefore there is more to do, more to discuss, dialogue, agree on, or things to talk about in order for people to someone, get someone in their journey towards Christ. I think Keller is right. We live in a more secular and pluralistic society than in the last few centuries. We don't share as many dots, if any, with our neighbors as we may have maybe even 50 years ago. So what do we do? Well, a wise course of action would be to examine exactly what the dots, the true dots, are. And that these true dots, what do they make up and what does it mean to follow Jesus of Nazareth to Christ, that true dot? And we as the leadership couldn't think of a better topic to go through than, uh, for a while than the Apostles' Creed, which is why we are doing this sermon series. 
paper, you see that this list of beliefs that we have been in, uh, that this list of beliefs has been recited individually and corporately since almost the first centuries of the church. It is what Orthodox Christians have believed for thousands of years, and they believe and recite it around the world in various languages. We are looking at this list of dots. This is a list of dots. When we went through and made those statements, those are the dots of what it means to be a Christian. Our dots, these dots, are what it means to follow Christ. And when we have a better idea of what it is we believe, what our dots are, it makes it easier for us to communicate exactly what we believe to those who don't share our dots. Now, we could do a whole sermon series or even a class on how the Apostles' Creed came into existence, so I won't go into that, but each time I get up uh, for one of these sermons, I'll try to share a bit of Apostles' Creed history to give us a better idea of exactly how we came to have this list of beliefs. I'll do this to encourage you, because encourage you to do your own research, to do your own looking into. The, the history is a fascinating thing, and we should let it guide us as we go forward in life. So the current creed that we have of the Apostles' Creed was pretty settled in its wording by the 5th century A.D. Before that, many of the ideas in the list were evidently around before the 2nd century. These were not written by the apostles themselves, but the list of beliefs were generally accepted by even members of the early church. So it wouldn't surprise me that if we could time travel back to the 7th century and understand the language being spoken in that church as they were doing their liturgy back then, that we would have heard some of these lines being recited. Perhaps even saying... Perhaps we would even hear a similar thing if we were to travel back to the second century in Judea or even Egypt or Asia Minor at the time. We would have heard some of these same lines. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. That would have been natural for them to say because that's what a Christian believed. There's something deeply mystical and reassuring to me to think that phrases I say today like I believe in God the Father Almighty in the cadence I have learned since being a child was also said in similar rhythms thousands of years ago and with no less authenticity. I and then we unite with our brothers and sisters around the world when they say it. Some may be even saying it today. Some may be saying it in this moment. And we unite with our brothers and sisters from ages past when we answer that question, Christian, what do you believe? So let me go into it. The phrase I'm addressing is in the creed, is uh, this oldest creed, is the first. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I will look at three things in this statement. I believe in, that phrase. Second phrase, God the Father. And the third, Almighty. So, I believe in God the Father Almighty. The three statements I'll address are I believe in, God the Father Almighty, or God the Father, and then Almighty. So, I believe in. The first word here is being I, is simply denoting that you, as an individual, are stating what you think is true. And since this creed is many times recited by a congregation, a group of people, it carries with it still in the saying, the individual I, that together we believe these things. So even though we're saying I, we're saying it generally in a group. So we're kind of uniting together in the we. 
It would be something similar to when I was a kid reciting the Pledge of Allegiance with my class. Or if any one of you have been to a concert of one of your favorite bands and you started singing a song and it was a song referring to I, but you're singing it in a group, you are uniting even though you're singing a song about an individual I. In those moments, even though the grammar is referring to you as a single person, the experience is expressing a communal spirit and it's no less true for I believe. Next, we have the phrase believe in. The act of belief is an act of commitment. It is a statement meant to signify what someone has decided in their mind what is the truth. It is a response to what is known. We also use the word faith to describe it. These two words, belief and faith, are not far afield from one another. But our culture has diluted the strength of this word by separating the idea of knowing from the idea of believing. A British missionary bishop and then scholar Leslie Newbigin talked about this in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. A very perceptive book that reads like it was written these past few years, and yet it was first a set of lectures in 1988 and then published as a book in 1989. In it, he references a line of thought in the West, the Western world, that changed, an idea in the fabric of the West's common knowledge, and that is the separation of knowing from believing. Knowing is reserved for talking about facts, more related to scientific statements. These would be ideas that are unquestionable in the sense that they are established for everyone. Gravity is a good example. Believing is meant for the more personal. It's outside the realm of facts and held in the area of places like religion or morality. Newbigin writes, about what we call facts, everyone is expected to agree. Of course, there are differences of opinion about the facts, but we don't accept the differences as final. We expect eventually to sort them out, clear up misconceptions and mistakes, and get general agreement, agreement about the facts. But for Newbigin, something like this first phrase of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, was not taught as a fact, but as a belief. He writes, uh, referring to this kind of thing, it, this statement, or something similar to it, may be included in the syllabus of religious studies, along with the beliefs of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Muslim, Islam, for it is a fact that some people do have these beliefs, but is it not itself a fact. It is a belief which some people hold, we do not ask if the belief is true, but whether the believer is sincere in holding the belief. Newbigin wraps up his thoughts in comparing these two ideas of knowing a fact and believing a belief with the very prescient statement, it does not occur to us to ask whether a person is sincere in his or her belief about physics. We ask whether that belief is correct. You see Newbigin's point here. We don't question whether someone is right or whether their belief is sincere about physics. We just assume physics is true for everyone. We just ask whether that belief in physics is correct. A brief uh, remark aside here, I think Newbigin is correct, but in our current culture it has gone even further, realizing that we've split knowing and believing. We are suffering the consequences of questioning whether there is in fact anything true at all. 
And when you go down that path, which I believe we as a nation and as a culture are going down that path, the only thing that matters at that point is power. And we are reaping that consequence. Let me read some verses in responses to this. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs or power, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Believing is a response to what is known, but may not be seen, and we all do this. For example, I can't prove to you my love for my wife, Sarah. I can exhibit it in my actions and words to her in your presence. But is that all that love is, that which you see? I can't bottle that up and send that, whatever it is, overseas to be analyzed to prove to people overseas that I love my wife. That's not how love is truly seen or truly is. Another example. I can't prove to you the valuable knowledge that it is wise to look both ways before you cross the street. That valuable piece of knowledge is not provable in the scientific sense, but I bet more than anything many of us would exercise that principle we have, uh, would, because we have faith in it and believe the absolute fact of that knowledge. We can do a study of the number of people that look across the street and don't look across the street and the consequences, but that doesn't prove the value of that statement itself. It just shows evidence of it. Last example. In the realm of science itself, and this is related to the previous one a little bit, you need faith or belief to exercise its accuracy. In order for us to make sense of science, you have to believe there is order inherent in the world. Science depends on order and repeatability. In order for us to do scientific research, we have to trust that there is something orderly to study. And we cannot prove that inherent belief scientifically. We have to assume it's true. And we need to believe it and go forward. Perhaps this is why the writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 11, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Everyone believes something. Even atheists believe in something. Even after they, have, they discredit and disregard traditional religious beliefs, after the, after the dismantling of what they think is false, they have to construct something to replace it. That which they use to replace it is what they believe or have faith in, whether it's the human spirit, society, aliens, something yet to be discovered in the vast universe with all the galaxies out there. In the movie Contact about space and alien contact, I remember them quoting Carl Sagan about the vastness of the universe. The character played by Jodie Foster recalls a memory with her father who had died. She recalls asking um, him if there really were any aliens out in the universe and the father replied with Sagan's quote seems an awful big waste of space 
<coughs> that is a faith statement. That is faith in something that isn't known. It's a faith in something that will be known or found out. That's the faith. The Father's saying, this is an awful big space out there. There's got to be something out there. I have faith or I trust that we'll run into something if we go far enough. So why is that faith any different than the faith that we have in Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, and his unique work? So what do you believe in? The things that you believe in, do you just blindly follow them, or have you given them thought or a combination of the two? I have reasons for my faith, but my faith is not only reason. It requires an act of will as well. Sarah and I recently started rewatching the animated series Star Wars Rebels. And the Jedi Knight, Kanan Jarrus, at one point is talking with his Padawan, Ezra Bridger, and tells him, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't real. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let us beseech, let us all beseech Jesus with that same supplication of the father of the boy with the unclean spirit. I believe, Jesus, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Next phrase. God the Father. I believe in God the Father. Two things to say about this phrase. First, in stating the word, uh, the title or the name God, we are proclaiming that we think there is more to this world than what we take in with our five senses and gestate in our minds. We believe, we know, we think there is most definitely an outside the box. Look at Psalm 19, which was read. Look at the language used there. The heavens declare, the skies proclaim. Day pours out speech. Night reveals knowledge. And this language goes out to a degree that it goes everywhere and it is not misunderstood. There is a tree in our backyard that is uh, on the property line between ours and our neighbor, the chiropractor's uh, business. It's the tallest tree near our yard, and it has these green leaves. And since it's tall, it sits high above all the other trees. And I love to watch it on a spring or summer day that is windy because as the wind passes through its branches, it does two mesmerizing things. It makes the branches wave, and then it causes these leaves to flash in color because the green on the leaves are two different shades of green. As you watch it, the leaves blink dark and light green and it becomes very hypnotizing. So the combination of the waving branches and the flipping and flashing leaves is beautiful to watch. I don't know about you, but this language strikes me as an outside the box language. This is language that strikes the eye. Now we could describe what I just talked about there with that tree this way, we could say that the sun's light traveling millions of miles through the void of space shining on the tree combined with the wind generated due to a change in temperature and the heating and the cooling of the earth of the, and the new nearby bodies of water caused the cold air to rush in as the warm air rushes out, which causes the light reflecting off the leaves of the tree, a tree, mind you, that was dropped there by a bird that flew by several decades ago, to travel through the air between where the tree exists and my eye happens to be in that moment passing through the lenses of my eye, striking the back of my eye, which then passes mysteriously through my mind into my brain, causing it to register in my thoughts, wow, that's beautiful. This is a simple way of trying to begin to describe this favorite moment 
with a nearby tree that is inside the box. But that seems lacking, especially in meaning and purpose. We could describe that that way, or we could describe it in the language that we just read in Psalm, 29, Psalm 19, where the heavens declare, the sky proclaims, day pours forth speech, night knowledge. Or we could even describe what I just said there with that tree the way Paul did in Romans 1 when he wrote this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, us, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There's more going on than just what we see. Look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Before there was even a box, God existed. And when he said, let there be light, boom, there was a box. So when we say, I believe in God, we are saying there is an outside the box. But we say, God, the Father. In saying this phrase, the Father, in this moment of history, I think it only appropriate to address the language here used. He is the Father. Why is this? What does it tell us about him and us? I want to tell you two things we need to keep in mind as I make this point, as I go into the point. Two things. One is, remember that we are trying to talk about a being much, much greater than we are. We can only understand that being uh, because of what has been communicated to us by that being. And he will only communicate to us what he wills. So keep that in mind. We are subordinate it's obvious when you look at this creation. There's no way I could have done this. Second, we must keep in mind a wise principle in interpreting Scripture, and that is the unclear is to be interpreted by the clear. Clear passages are to speak to the unclear passages. So if we don't see something as clear in Scripture, but something else in Scripture that is clear about that subject, then we can utilize that which is clear to help us with the unclear. Does that make sense? If we don't understand something, we look at other scripture, and there, if there is other scripture that seems clear on that issue, then we've got to use that to interpret scripture. Keep these in mind. The Apostles' Creed says that we believe in God the Father. When God is described in the Old Testament, he is described utilizing verb and noun forms that are at times both masculine and feminine. In the first chapter of Genesis, which I read a couple of verses just now, this description of God creating there uses masculine forms in the grammar. At times, when the Holy Spirit is written about, later on, feminine forms of grammar are used. As I was looking at some of the passages with this language, I was finding it fascinating, first of all, but it wasn't really conclusive to me and to others I was reading if God was male or female. And I don't think it was meant to be that. 
and yet God is called Father. And that is kind of confusing. Because again, we are talking about a being very different from us that we are subordinate to. And this leads me to the point of asking myself, what can I see that is clear regarding how God is referenced? And that is where looking at the clear places in Scripture were helpful. So let me mention two. In the creation account of humanity, it seems rather clear that God created two persons in his image, and they were not the same. They were male and female. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The two make up the image. This is reinforced in my looking at how God is described using both male and female articles in the Hebrew. What is also fascinating is that when God created Adam in the Genesis 2 account, masculine male Adam, he eventually says that that's not good. That a complete Adam is an Adam who has a feminine counter, an Eve. Just as the reverse seems equally true, an Eve needs a masculine counter, Adam. Isn't it interesting that God shows us that the combination of feminine and masculine here on earth shows us a more complete image of God. Perhaps that's why God saw the relationship of a man and a woman in marriage as important and sacred. It seems that every time one of the biblical characters tries to venture outside the bounds of having relations with someone other than their his or her wife, it doesn't go so well. Look it up. It doesn't go well when Abraham does it. It doesn't go well when David does it. It doesn't go well when Gomer does it. So male and female are more a more complete image of God. Now, I'm not saying that single people need to rush out and get married. That's not what I'm saying right now, single people. I'm saying there's something uniquely interactive about the male and female relationship. And that can even happen in single relationships with the opposite sex. You've got to carry some wisdom in that relationship. But in your interaction, men, with the women... There's something uniquely to the image of God in that. Same with you women, single women. When you interact with men, there's something unique in that image of God. Second point. So the first is, male and female seem to be clearly created in the Scripture. And that gives me some idea a little bit about God being male or female. Second point. Seems from my reading, Jesus is a dude. I mean, look at Matthew 1, 24 and 25. Joseph took his wife, but he knew her not. He, but knew her not. Basically, Joseph didn't have sex with Mary until she had given birth to a son. And Joseph called his name Jesus. It seems rather clear there that Jesus was male. But he was unlike any male at the time of his first appearance on earth. And this speaks to his thoughts on the feminine, on women, because... How did he treat women while he was on this earth? Well, they were instrumental in the accomplishment of his ministry. Mark 15, 40 and 41 says, There were also women looking on from a distance. This is while he was being crucified. So there were a bunch of women from a distance looking at Jesus. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when Jesus was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and they were also, there were also many other women who came up with him from Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. So if Jesus was so 
patriarchal and misogynist, why were there so many women following him? Maybe he treated them the way they needed and should be respected. Another way Jesus treated women, and I think this is the greatest show of respect of all, it astounds me, is to ask this question. Tim Keller actually uh, said this once in a sermon, and it blew my mind. Who were the first members of the church? John 20, 11, and 14 through 18 says this, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced it to the disciples. I have seen the Lord, and that she had seen the thing. Uh, she said these things to him, to her. The sex whose testimony that could not at that time be admissible at witness in any kind of court at that day, Jesus appears to and says, go witness. That's astonishing. That's amazing, ladies. How cool is that? Not only was our Lord carried to term and birthed by a woman, but a, woman wit- a woman's witness to men birthed the church. That astounds me. So, these clearer moments speak to the unclear of the obscurity of the feminine and masculine of God and draw me to several conclusions. God is both and neither male and female. Do you understand what I'm saying there? He is both and neither This sounds ridiculous, but I can only go as far as Scripture states. Jesus is a dude, but the feminine feminine language is still present. Jesus used it himself even while he was on earth. And men men and women still make up the full image of God. Though this may be a bit confusing on our end, it is not confusing on God's. A basic observation about all the sexuality and gender issues in our current day holds that there is a lot of confusion and hurt and depression wrapped up on, uh, on these issues. But none of that is present, at least in my understanding with, uh, of Scripture, with God. James 1.17 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good, and, and every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. These verses say there is no shadow in God. There is no change. Out of God can come nothing inconsistent. As it says here, good and perfect gifts come from God. You can't have perfect gifts if they change all the time. That's not perfection. If you look at the verses right after uh, verses 1 through 6 in Psalm 19, it says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, much, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. The source of law, God himself, is pure, sure, simple, right, pure, enlightening, clean, enduring, true, righteous. His laws are more treasured than gold, and they're sweeter than honey. And when you ally yourself with them, there is reward. This does not sound like a confused, depressed, or conflicted being. And thank God for that, because I am a confused, depressed, and conflicted being many times. And I need something steadfast to hold me, hold me true. So is God male or female? Both and neither. He knows, and he's here, he is clear about it in his own being. How we follow that is up to us and how we read his word and practice it in our lives. So I believe in God the Father Almighty. The meaning of this description, this title, has come home to me more of late. Before the, all, uh, before the word Almighty meant to me like the words of Muhammad Ali, he is the greatest. There is nothing bigger or better than God. This has been brought home since Sarah, uh, to me since Sarah and I started to begin to read and listen to the teachings of Michael Heiser, an Old Testament professor who has become more popular of late. As we have, lis as we have listened to him into the details of the language of the Old Testament, passages, passages and verses that seemed odd and obscure have reaffirmed and expanded my appreciation for God being the Almighty. Essentially, saying that God, saying that God is the King of Kings and the God of God means exactly that. He is the ultimate of all beings. He is the being upon which all other beings depend, and are mere shadows of. There are other powerful beings out there, and they have ex exercised their wills upon humanity. Some have even been referred to or referenced as small g gods. But they are not the God of gods. That is reserved for God the Father, Son, and Spirit alone. Psalm 33.11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Job answered God in Job 42.2 when he said, I know that you, God, can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Our purposes, our plans can be thwarted. The plans of small g gods, the plans of angels, whether pure or fallen, can be thwarted. But the plans of the Almighty, they can never be thwarted. He is a canny strategist. He is a masterful chess player. And the evidence of this is in his response to the fall in the garden. That at the, at the moment of the fall, right after it, he said there would be a man who would crush the enemy's head. And in that crushing, that crushing came at the cross. When humility and sacrifice saved even the proud and selfish. Us. So I wonder, do you believe that? I believe in God the Father Almighty. Do you?
Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, uh, for your word. Thank you for revealing it to us, holding it sure. I pray that you would help us to approach it humbly and with wisdom, and that we would do that not only individually but in community, finding your pure image in both the male and the female, find your image in community and it is that community to which I pray for that your church right now in our world um, particularly the ones that are under attack we ask for your protection Uh, we ask for your courage in case you wish for us not to be protected but to experience what your will would be for us But we know regardless of whether we receive good or bad from you, you will be with us. And we ask that you would remind us of that uh, this day. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.